Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 104 and a half on Friday, the 22nd of March, 2013. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and I'm doing a very special podcast here from B-Sides in Austin, Texas. I was uh, very privileged to be able to present a couple of presentations here and also uh, be on a couple panels, and I thought, what a great opportunity to get together with a few of the experts here in Austin and share some of the thoughts from the conference and what we're up to at B-Sides, since so many folks um, have yet to have it come to their communities, as many people just have a B-Sides now, there's still far, far more that don't, and we thought we'd share a little bit of our experiences. So today I have with me uh, Michael Goff, who's a security consultant and researcher, and Ian Robertson, who's a, another consultant here in the Austin area. And we have Jeremy Zarechak, who's actually a, a, a film director. And uh, that's where I, actually where I want to kind of start, because we kicked off this B-Sides sort of a night early, right? You know, B-Sides this year was Thursday and Friday here in Austin. And on Wednesday night, we all got together to watch Code 2600, which is sort of a, a, a history of hacking film from the Cold War to, you know, kind of where we sit today, which... I guess is part of the debate. And uh, welcome, Jeremy. Great work on the project. Can you tell us a little bit of what inspired you to, uh, you know, to create the film and, and what went into it? Yes, yeah, certainly. It was um, oh about four years ago now that I had uh, befriended a individual who was a former intrusion detection specialist for the uh, Federal Reserve, and through s such extensive conversation with him, I had come to the realization that there was this wonderful, rich and vast history in the coming of the information technology age and computer and the computer hacking culture. Once I returned back from my trip, uh, from which I had, had met him, uh, I started doing some research. And basically what I found was that there was this, you know, very deep history in how we got to where we are today with essentially a computer phone that puts or fits in our pockets. And I think uh, it's a, a history that not many people are familiar with, and they don't really have any idea of how we got to where we are today. Four years later, here we are, and uh, I had completed the film knowing that I wanted to kind of hold the line between entertainment and accuracy. And uh, I'm glad to hear that, uh, you know, the film is traveling with that kind of uh, response. Yeah, I thought it was great, and what I was really surprised by was the fact that you seemed to get it right. Uh, you know, we, most of the time when we hear about hackers, whether it's in the movies or television or any other medium, uh, it's it's focusing on either you know the Kevin Mitnick story or or people you know hacking in and stealing credit cards and you know all these types of things, which certainly is a, is a part of the culture, but it's a very small slice of what you know, being a hacker really means and the, and, and covering, you know, the early phone freaks and all these different things like that is, uh, you know, how did you manage to get it right? I mean, like, it, it seems to be such a niche thing that only the people that seem to live through it really seem to understand that story. Uh, how did you go about finding, you know, your source material and the, and the people involved? Well, I think first and foremost is that, you know, I, I developed an infinity for the subject matter. I fell in love with the story. And, once you fall in love with the story as a documentary filmmaker, uh, you know, the, the rest is just making sure that you whittle it in the right way. And with this particular subject, there is such an immense amount of information out there. Uh, and to try and uh, begin to, you know, peel back the layers here to get to the, you know, the core of your narrative or your story, and it becomes a challenge in what you have to exclude uh, rather than include because there is so much 
that's out there on, you know, hacking and the coming of the information technology age. And it certainly was a challenge to just to kind of immerse myself into the culture as an outsider, as someone who had no experience in security. But uh, I found that the culture, once I approached them with, you know, a legitimate project and a vision, have, were actually pretty receptive to my inquiries. And I had very little trouble getting some of the bigger names that I was able to get in front of the camera for interviews. Yeah, I think that's maybe something people don't understand about the culture sometimes is that those of us that aren't actually full-time credit card criminals um, are very open and want to tell our stories and we want to welcome people into uh, our world because it's a world of exploration and creativity and all this stuff that you would think everybody would want to inspire in their children and everything else, right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's the human spirit and, uh, you know, we're, we're not a closed society. We're a very welcoming group. You had a pretty big announcement yesterday at lunchtime here uh, at, at the uh, lunch break about hackers in Uganda. So, you know, a lot of uh, Chat Chat listeners may be familiar with Hackers for Charity and Johnny Long, uh, hackersforcharity.org, I've talked about several times on the podcast in the past. Uh, great organization. Can you tell us a little bit about this Hackers in Uganda project? Sure. Um, so it was uh, around November of last year, I began to open up a dialogue with uh, Hackers for Charity and uh, Johnny Long in regards to doing a documentary that examined their operations in Uganda. Uh, I had found out about what, you know, they were doing in the course of producing Code 2600. And then during uh, Austin, Dallas, uh, Mike Goff had invited me to sit at a table at the final dinner. And at that table was a representative from Hackers for Charity. And I just began to, you know, listen to the conversations at the table and became very, very interested in knowing exactly what it was that they were doing over there. It kind of, you know, galvanized it for me. Of course, I had seen them at the DEF CONs. I've seen them at the Black Hats and the conferences uh, while I was filming. But to actually speak with someone on a kind of one-on-one -on -one intimate basis and really kind of see what the spirit meant in their operations, their charitable operations over there, that is teaching Ugandans computer skills and offering them, you know, the, the freedom of the internet, uh, where otherwise they would not have a means to reach out and find benefits, whether they be educational or medical. Uh, and I think it's pretty special work. And it's also, I think, providing a window into what charity operations could look like as we move through the 21st century and even nation building for that matter. Uh, so, um, based on those conversations, uh, Hackers for Charity was receptive to my idea of producing a documentary on their operations. And we began to think about, well, how do we get it funded? Because that's always, you know, the issue with uh, documentary films. We're, we're not we're not studio backed. And, uh, you know, we don't work for companies or corporations. So independent documentary filmmakers always have to find funding. So obviously Kickstarter being the successful website uh, that it has come to be today, we figured was our best avenue. So we have launched as of yesterday, a Hackers in Uganda Kickstarter for the documentary project. Both I and Hackers for Charity are involved with. And if you go to Kickstarter and you search Hackers in Uganda, you will find uh, the Kickstarter page there. And we have plenty of really, really wonderful rewards both uh, movie memorabilia from Code 2600, everything from a TRS-80 that does still power up and boot up, to a lot of wonderful uh, swag that uh, HFC has thrown into the uh, bucket for us, everything from uh, our laser-etched computer hardware like Raspberry Pis 
to uh, T-shirts and dog tags, all you know, uh, unique and hand stamped and such. So uh, we've really put together a strong Kickstarter, but we, you know, we need the support of the hacker and the IT security community for sure. Yeah, and I think that's a great project. And for folks that want to find that, we also created a Bitly URL, so you can go to bit.ly/hackersuganda. Uh, which will take you directly to the Kickstarter page. So if you want to make a contribution and take advantage of some of those cool uh, rewards and movie set pieces and stuff, which is kind of cool to have a little piece of cool nerd history, uh, check that out. And to kind of wrap up the Code 2600 talk, you know, Michael, you brought uh, the film here to Austin and then some of the other B-Sides Texas events. Uh, what was your motivation? How did you find out about the film and what did you want to see come of it? Uh, well, getting it to the masses, you know, our... Like you said, I mean, we see this stuff on TV, and I think I opened up saying, you know, I'm still looking to find out how I can get a socket on a server after watching years of 24 hours. And I, I wanted everybody to see this because, uh, as you and I had discussed, we got nothing. It was perfect. It was accurate. It really reflected what our industry, for me, I started off with phone freaking. So it was just a great story, a great job, and my gosh, somebody actually got it right. Yeah, my, my thoughts exactly. I have a similar background, and I remember getting on bulletin boards in the early 1980s with my acoustic coupler, and that story hasn't been told very much, and uh, so I, I, I did really enjoy it, and hopefully uh, when it's released this summer, an even bigger audience, and not just folks at B-Sides um, and, and other events where I know you've been showing the film, but uh, it'll have broader distribution this summer. Is that right, Jeremy? Uh, yes, uh, we, we have announced on our social networks yesterday uh, that was coupled with the Kickstarter that we will actually be releasing on DVD, Blu-ray, digital streaming, and we'll have some limited edition discs available as well. And I guess it's important to mention that one of the rewards actually is a pre-order of the Co. 2600 DVD on the Kickstarter page. We've only made 50 of them available, uh, and they will be signed and stamped individually as their own Kickstarter limited edition to the Co. 2600 DVD series. I should be, I should clarify for our Southern Hemisphere listeners that summer, meaning North American summer, in a few months from now, uh, so I don't uh, upset our Kiwi and Aussie friends. But Ian, uh, you know, there's kind of a theme to this year's B-Sides here that, uh, well, in a very nerdy fashion that's fantastic, is Star Trek. And uh, I actually was at a party in Austin last night that was, um, I think I was, I stood out, let's just say that, I was wearing my yellow uh, commander shirt. Perhaps you could describe a little bit about some of the thoughts behind this year's theme at B-Sides. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, we're at our heart, at our core, we're all a bunch of geeks. We all enjoy having a lot of fun. Uh, and I think that we all share in the common spirit that that's really behind, you know, Star Trek and Star Wars and these sorts of things. So for us, it really helped convey that sort of both entrepreneurial type spirit and that exploration and you know, hacking is really, you know, for a lot of us is really about exploring and having fun and, and sharing in sort of that common goal and that camaraderie. And, and I think for us, it was, it was just a great combination and it, and it really helped set the theme for, for this year's events. Although, is it any kind of a sign that Michael's wearing a red shirt? Usually that's a bad <laughs> sign on Star Trek. Uh... Well, this theme's actually started from two years ago. Last year we gave out, as you're wearing one now, uh, blue and red shirts. And so now we've completed the uh, three-color Star Trek shirts with the gold commander shirts this year. And I have a modified captain's uh, shirt from, from last year. <laughs> Um, but from a more technical perspective, Michael, the theme seems to be a lot about this concept of 
emerging threats and events, persistent threats, and are the Chinese all up in our business and this kind of stuff, right? And I mean, is is that um, indicative of the media or is that indicative of what we're really struggling with as IT professionals trying to defend ourselves? I think it's a combination. The media's done a good job at, at reporting a lot of information, and I think our industry is now at a pivotal point where they're understanding and saying, uh-oh, I need to do something about it. And we received probably seven, eight talks around being owned or malware. And so uh, that became very quickly the theme for this year. You submitted a couple talks. Uh, Ian and I submitted one as well. A couple others, David Balkar. So we had a lot to do with uh, being owned and malware. Yeah, yesterday morning I went to HD Moore's keynote. HD uh, Moore was out this year from Rapid Seven, of course, uh, famous for developing the Metasploit toolkit. HD is always interesting. I mean, anytime HD talks, yeah, everybody wants to listen. I mean, the information he tells brings a lot of news and press to issues that are out there that nobody's really looked at. Yeah, the, I mean, the work that HD did was really interesting, and uh, there was a lot of data that came out of it because most of us don't have the resources to scan the entire IPv4 address space numerous times. Um, and get the kind of statistics and information he found. And while the scale of the numbers of vulnerable things is quite frightening, there were also some interesting bits in there that I thought we had moved beyond, and, and unfortunately it sounds like we haven't. For example, there are more FTP and Telnet systems listening on the Internet than there are SSH. And at first I'm like, did I get in a time machine? I'm checking my watch. Is it 2013? I thought it was. Um, what the hell is going on out there that we still have FTP, which uh, in my presentation yesterday I talked about how many of the black hole exploit kit websites that are distributing that garbage um, are infected through people uh, having FTP passwords compromised and this type of thing. Is that indicative of your experience of working with people in the field? Are we really that bad off that we're still exposing Telnet to all these embedded devices and routers and all this stuff? Or do you think it's just a lot of consumer gear that's laying around that nobody cares about? I think we're still in the point where people in IT is deploying faster than we can secure it. We often find out after the fact. You know, as a consultant for HP for years, we'd go to places to check out what they'd implement, and we'd be shocked at the default configurations. Uh, Ian and I, in our work, we see the same thing. They'll deploy something to get a solution out and fail to actually do some very simple basic checks. And so I think that's key is we really need to get in front of that development, and we're still not there yet. And I think the other thing that goes along with that is, you know, we, IT has, these things have really become a commodity. And we're seeing organizations that really don't have to have an, a, a real IT shop, real IT infrastructure that can go and they can out, they can go out to, you know, a, a cloud provider and they can spin up these services very easily. And they don't really have to understand what they are. They just know that they work. And they are not inherently, uh, you know, they don't, they don't know of these vulnerabilities necessarily themselves. So I think we're seeing also a spread of that as it becomes so easy to implement these types of services. Because I know that uh, from, from my own experience, I'm continuing to see service providers that, that we go to and we use marketing agencies, things like this, that continue to offer those types of things. And uh, that, you know, that becomes very frustrating when you uh, work with these companies and you, you ask these questions. Well, do you have you know, SFTP or FTPS or something of that nature? And A, they generally don't know what that is, and B, the answer is no. So uh, I, I think that's also something that we see going on and is, is causing that to increase in, um, in, in, in size and scale. 
Yeah, I guess that reminds me of when it was realized that some of the AMIs being used on Amazon EC2 had somebody else's root SSH keys included in all of them because they were just duplicating this AMI file without even understanding uh, that there's a hidden folder <laughs> with, with keys in it. And it is, kind of, I mean, I, what it tells me is that nobody's listening to the advice of the security industry saying you need to be doing regular pen tests and finding this stuff. We know that you're going to accidentally deploy it. We know you're going to buy devices that may have embedded things and you didn't realize because you didn't test everything properly. But that's part of the point of having a pen test is to catch that stuff, to have a regular schedule so that it's not out there forever and getting more and more antiquated, more and more vulnerable to more and more people who understand how to exploit it. And, you know, I guess we need to reinforce that messaging to folks that the, the pen test isn't just about knowing that you can be owned, because I think we all know that we can be owned and we are being owned. It's about doing your best to not leave the door wide open and then the rest of the time keeping an eye on everything and making sure it's not happening. I would, I mean, that's my that's my takeaway from the, the conference this year, I think. And you know why we put on B-Sides. It's to spread that message and it's why you do the podcast. We need to get the message out. We need to educate. That's why everybody wearing a blue shirt this year is an officer. They're a security officer to take that information back to their companies and to promote security. Yeah, la lastly, I wanted to bring up uh, Marcus Carey's talk. Uh, we were talking yesterday on a panel about some very similar things and here in the in the uh, staff meeting room, speaker meeting room, we talked about a little this morning, and uh, he's talking on threat modeling like a boss, and uh, the translation of that into the actual talk is really about uh, going after the high priority stuff and learning whether you have the capabilities and the tools to properly address um, those vulnerabilities, and, and it's something I certainly strongly support, the idea that, yeah, I mean, a critical vulnerability when it's called critical by insert vendor X here, whoever they are, may in fact be critical or it may just have a potential critical outcome but the criminals don't care because it's too hard or it's too inconvenient or anything else and that we need to be focusing our attention more on things that we know are being exploited you know are you able have you patched against the vulnerabilities being exploited by the latest black hole exploit kit by um, the stuff on caffeine's malware don't need coffee blog or uh, you know contagio blog and the things where we start to see these are the real world exploits that are coming in through our email boxes through our web browsers have you and can you defend against those vulnerabilities more broadly than just everything that might be on your computers because we know that patching everything is really damn difficult um, so you do have to prioritize you have to put your energies where you, you where you think it's going to have the most impact but we don't really see people doing that. They go, well, I've got WSS, and I, I think I got the Microsoft stuff out there. Well, do you have Firefox? Oh, yeah, yeah. Did you patch? Well, you know, it's hard to patch Firefox. It keeps changing. Uh, you know, you get a lot of excuses. So I think it is, you know, um, I guess Marcus is releasing a tool at his website, threatagent.com, to assist with this kind of stuff that ties into the social engineering toolkit and some other things like that. So people responsible for patching and testing their own organizations and that kind of stuff are probably going to want to check out his uh, new free offering at, uh, there at threatagent.com and uh, you know the talk is actually ongoing at the moment so I haven't actually sat through the talk I just had the personal private preview from Marcus which sounded pretty darn good to me and uh, so I, I kind of recommend that any any parting thoughts from uh, from any of you well, we were early uh, testers of Marcus's tool because we provided him some actual exploitation information and say, okay, find this info. So uh, we like his interface. It's good stuff. People should definitely check it out. We have another tool being released about risk management by Josh Sokol. So besides this, sharing some new tools in the industry, Ian and I have shared uh, a new tool ourselves at Dallas, DFW, besides, and that's what we do here. We share information, good stuff, good talks, and a great time. 
Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me again. This is my second year at B-Sides. And uh, now that we're not a sponsor this year, I know you actually love me, which is fantastic. Um, but uh, thanks for having me out. And thanks for joining us, Jeremy. Uh, it was really a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. And uh, on that note, I'll wrap up Sofa Security Chat Chat 104 and a half. Uh, for March 22nd, 2013. As always, for all of our podcasts, please visit podcasts.sophos.com. Uh, you can find us on iTunes or our RSS feed. And of course, always at, for the latest news and podcasts, nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Until next time, stay secure.